0: I wanted to be the first to wish you a happy Pentecost Sunday. Perhaps you didn't realize or know that Pentecost Sunday was a thing. You you may wonder that now because we live in a day and a time of history when there's a day that represents absolutely everything. For example, Friday was Donut Day. Perhaps you celebrated National Donut Day, but you may not have known that it was actually also National Rotisserie Chicken Day. So not sure how many of you took part in that. Or if you celebrated over the weekend chocolate macaroon day on Saturday, seems like a day well worth celebrating to me. Or perhaps you celebrated insect repellent awareness day. Um, I'm not sure about that one. We didn't celebrate that one personally. And of course, if you're wondering, today could also be considered cancer awareness day or hug your cat day. And I have no doubt there are a lot of people celebrating both. And if you're wanting to prepare for tomorrow, you can get ready for Sausage Roll Day, a day that conveniently comes the Monday after Donut Day, which happens to fall on the first Friday in June. So there's all of your holidays wrapped up in one, getting you ready also to celebrate National Hot Air Balloon Day next week. If you wonder if these are all made-up holidays, I'm pretty sure they are. I think they're businesses trying to push their products But I assure you that Pentecost Sunday is not one of these made up days. In fact, the church has celebrated Pentecost for nearly 2,000 years, and the Jewish faith celebrated Pentecost for probably 1,400 years before that. Pentecost was an annual spring feast that followed Passover by 50 days. And in fact, today is the day in the Christian calendar where the church historically has gathered to celebrate that. How fitting that we're looking at Pentecost. It was this Jewish feast that required capable Jewish men to travel to Jerusalem. That's the context, the setting by which we'll find our text this morning. That men gathered to to present their first fruits of their wheat harvest to God. To acknowledge that he alone was their provider, that he was their sustainer, that he was giving them everything they needed to live by. And so if you lived in a reasonable distance, you were expected to travel to Jerusalem to attend the feast. And it was at this feast of Pentecost, very fittingly, that these disciples were gathered together after the death, after the resurrection, And after the ascension of Jesus, when the Holy Spirit came, not just to visit these followers of Christ, but to take up full residence within them in fulfillment of the Old Testament and New Testament prophecies. And it was on that day that God changed his relationship with man forever. And the church was born Pentecost Day represents the church's birthday. And so it was on this day we celebrate that God gave us a body to walk with so that we wouldn't have to go at this life alone, but in fact intended for us to walk in the community of believers, that we would encourage one another and hold one another and do life with one another. And we're still celebrating that by being gathered together this morning. So as we continue in our study in the book of Acts, in our series called Empowered, we're looking at Pentecost. And if you were here with us last week, we walked you through the first 13 verses in Acts 2, looking at the Holy Spirit and considering the biblical truth found in Ephesians 1.13. That if you've heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, friends, that is an incredible and a great truth I want you to grasp onto. In fact, I'll probably put it before you for about eight more weeks. Because if you've heard the gospel, and never make the mistake that hearing the gospel is enough, we can think, hey, I've been in church my whole life, I've heard it before, but it's not the hearing of the gospel that saves you, it's believing in it, it's putting your trust in it, that's what Paul affirms here, and tells you that in that moment of belief that you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, that he comes to dwell you to fill you and to seal you, and that's God claiming you for eternity. Which is to say that when you believed, you were sealed. And you were sealed with a spirit that would indwell you, not partly, not insufficiently, but totally and completely. And we might be tempted to take that for granted, we might be tempted to move past that. To not appreciate what having the third person of the Trinity physically indwelling our lives looks like. Therefore, we're going to continue on in this text to see what the Holy Spirit does, to see the impact of the Holy Spirit, to see Him at work. And in fact, all cards on the table... That's why we've called this series Empowered, so that we would have before us God's plan for His Spirit to move in your life and in mine, and for us all to see that we live with every single day, those who've believed in Jesus, we live with the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and we've been empowered. And I think one of the great places to see that is in the life of Peter. We're going to see that shift in him. Turn with me now to Acts 2, verse 14. Luke writes, But Peter, standing with the eleven. Now you've got to remember the Holy Spirit has just come into the room like a mighty wind. It's settled on each disciple like a tongue of fire that sounds interesting to you and you missed last week, you can pick up the podcast, listen to it. But this outpouring of the Spirit causes the disciples to begin to testify in tongues, according to Acts 2.4, which means that they spoke in their natural language, and yet people from at least 15 different parts of the ancient world understood them as if I were to speak to you now in English, the only tongue I could speak with any proficiency, and you were to hear me in Spanish or German or Russian or Arabic or any number of other languages. That's what happens here. And it causes the people around the crowd to go, whoa, are these guys drunk? This is the setting that's occurring when Peter decides to stand up. This is the question he's going to answer What's going on? These guys must be drunk. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. A quick question. Does that sound like Peter to you at all? Now, the willingness to be the first to speak, absolutely. But I think if we read our Bibles and if we didn't know any better and we picked up Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and you get to Peter here, you find a really radically different guy. In fact, you see him differently. In fact, so much differently, you might wonder if this is Peter Smith and not Peter Johnson. Don't know his last name. Probably didn't have one. But this is the same Peter. And what we have to have before us when we come to Peter in Acts 2, is that 53 days prior to this, Peter was testifying to Jesus, I will never leave you. I will never fall away. These are his words. And it was 53 days prior that Peter follows Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane saying, I'll stay awake, I'll pray with you, and then falls asleep repeatedly. And this is Peter that on three different times denied knowing Jesus. Not his lordship, not his relationship, but I don't even know the man I don't even know the man. I don't know him. And friends, I have no doubt that watching the crucifixion of Jesus strongly impacted Peter. And I have no doubt that the resurrection of Jesus would have impacted Peter. And I have no doubt that the ascension of Jesus into the sky would have deeply impacted Peter. But friends, as we walk through this text, you'll see Peter wasn't the only one to watch those things happen. In fact, there would have been plenty of people in and around Jerusalem who would have watched Jesus be crucified, who would have seen him walking around afterwards and might have even got a glimpse of him rising up into the sky. Again, I don't know about you, but I've never seen a man ascend into the clouds, but I suspect that garnered some attention. Peter's not the only one who witnessed these kinds of things. The Bible affirms that. So the difference has to be the Holy Spirit. That when the Holy Spirit comes On him, when it rests in him, it gives him the power that Jesus testified that it would. So Peter stands up again in a full city. Now don't miss this. Just like at Passover when Jesus was on trial, the city is full again. Lots of people are around. And like the last time in a crowd where Peter said overly and overtly again and again, I don't know the man, this time Peter has a far different boldness. Because rather than backing away from the spotlight, Peter steps into it. And we can never miss this. Peter steps into it in front of many of the same people who yelled crucify him when Jesus was on trial. In front of many of the same people who watched Jesus be beaten, watched him be killed. If there was a time not to stand out, frankly, this might have been it, right? They just killed your best friend. They clearly have the power to do this. I'd walk away But that's not Peter's response. No, Peter steps into it, this time not to deny him, but to proclaim him. And doing something, frankly, we've never seen Peter do in the Gospels before. Because most of the time he opened his mouth and stuck his foot in, did he not? And here he opens his mouth and preaches a sermon. He picks up two texts we never even seen him quote the Bible before. He picks up two texts and begins to exposit them before crowd, all pointing to the truth that Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus is the Lord. And he wants this crowd of people, this gathering, to know that in an unmistakable way. This Jesus that I denied 53 days ago is the only hope of salvation. It's what Peter wants them to say. So this morning as we continue, I have the challenging task of preaching a sermon on a sermon. Which is to say this, it's a it's a lengthy text. And a lot of times with lengthy texts, I wouldn't walk all the way through it. But when Peter preaches a sermon, we've got to give his words credit. Because <laughs> he nailed it. This is what Peter says, starting in verse 16. And this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. He begins to quote Joel too. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapors of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. And before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What Peter does here is he makes plain using the Old Testament which surely everyone who's now obligated to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost would have been familiar with the Old Testament. So he pulls prophecies from the Old Testament to say, this is Jesus. This is God going out. And if you were to study your Old Testament, the day of the Lord would be a magnificent theme which would elicit all kinds of thoughts and emotions For you and from you. And while there are all sorts of commentaries written about the fulfillment of Joel 2 and whether this is a complete fulfillment of Joel 2 or a partial fulfillment of Joel 2, the reality exists that what Peter is doing here is that he's exhibiting before the crowd that God is sending out his spirit. That's what's happening here. That God is at work. And the Spirit has been poured out, and we can't miss this from Joel, and we can't miss this from the book of Acts, because when the Spirit comes, there's an impact. Or if you're a chemist, there's a reaction. It's like adding vinegar to baking soda. Something happens, not nothing Something happens, it's like putting batteries in a Nerf gun that requires them. The power has been added, and the end of that impact, according to both Joel and Acts, is salvation. That God will make Himself known, and that those who call on Him shall be saved. And then with tremendous conviction, Peter steps forward To make his message more plain and more clear and incredibly importantly, much more personal. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. Saying God testified to you about him with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know, Peter makes his first point, and this is always the work of the Spirit. He points to Jesus and asserts this. The works of Jesus testify that he was God. That God testified to you with visible signs, visible wonders, That Jesus was God. And he did so by the feeding of 5,000. You're going to feed 5,000 people with two loaves and and a loaf of bread. That's God. I tried it once. We were all hungry. That's God. That it's God working when he calms the storm. I tried that once. It continued to rain. It was clearly God. That it was the raising of Lazarus from the dead that proved he was God. You'll see this throughout the Gospels that Jesus heals people and then people who knew him are saying, hey, what happened? And it's always the Pharisees who say, why didn't you do it on Sunday? But the point is, is that God was at work testifying that Jesus was the Messiah and that's not the whole story, so Peter keeps preaching. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, we'll step into that in a minute, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Let's pause for a second. Peter makes two claims here, both of which theologically accurate, pretty impressive for a fisherman with no theological training. Peter holds them accountable for their decision to crucify Jesus. You'll find this to be true throughout Scripture. God holds men accountable for their actions. God calls sin, sin, and he always, always holds people accountable for their sin, and he does so here. And yet, on this particular occasion... He doesn't leave them responsible for it as if Jesus were somehow a victim because Jesus was definitively not a victim. You see both at work here. God had a plan and men choose to crucify Jesus. God chose for Jesus to be crucified and yet men were still guilty for the sins of their hands. This was God's definitive Plan. From the beginning. When Adam and Eve chose to eat the apple and sin came into the world, this was God's definitive plan forecasted for us in G- Genesis 3.15 that the head of the serpent would be crushed, that God would solve the sin problem, and God had a definitive plan to crush the serpent. And to rescue men from their sin and from the slavery of sin. And it was sending His Son. Not as a sacrifice, but as the sacrifice that prevented us from always having to take lambs year after year and month after month to say, God, I blew it. Please take this from me. May this lamb somehow make up what I've done. God said, no. I don't need any more lambs. I'm sending my son to take on all of your sin. Unless we think it's just these few guys who are responsible for killing Jesus, friends, no, it was you and it was me too. That it was our sin that sent him to the cross. That it was our sin that held him there. Don't make the mistake as generations before us have of blaming the Jews for crucifying Jesus because we did it too. We're just as guilty. God, Peter, makes plain to the crowd that God was at work and that they were in sin. And again, you have to step back and look at this. Because this is crazy bold. This is Peter standing up in a crowd, many of whom he knew, many of whom he watched during the life of Jesus, many of whom yelled, crucify him, many of whom participated in killing Jesus, and he says so. You did it! You killed this guy! He says it to their face! And you did it lawlessly! To the same people who could just really go, hey, let's do that to this guy too. Hey, here's another guy we could crucify. And they could have easily done it. And Peter was not ashamed. He was bold. Look at verse 24. And God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And Peter makes his second point that the plan of God will not be thwarted by your sin, that not even death could hold Jesus. Church, hear this. Not even your sin can thwart the plan of God. Which is to say this. You could not, cannot, even possibly conceive of ever doing anything that God couldn't forgive you for. Many, are the people who've stepped into my office saying, yeah, but if you only knew what I did. If you only knew what I was a part of. And friends, I tell this to you very purposefully and very publicly. It matters not what you did or what you were a part of. Gracious God sent his son to the cross and Jesus paid the price for all of it. All of it. All of it. There is no part of sin that you can hold on to that he can't forgive you for. And in fact, as we move through this service and in the end of it, and we come to this communion table, that is the affirmation of the communion table. When you take a piece of bread and you take it, you say, Jesus paid it all for me. And when you pick up a little cup and you drink it, you say, you publicly proclaim, I have been forgiven. His blood has washed me. I am clean. And church, you are. That not even your sin could thwart the cross. It was all taken care of. And Peter asserts here that the resurrection, Christ rising from the dead, showing power over even death, Paul asserts that he was the Messiah and that he was Lord. And then Peter moves on in the Old Testament, this time taking them to Psalm 16 to point them to David as if the testimony of a minor prophet weren't enough. He's a minor prophet. At least get a major prophet. Bible joke. So let's go after David. You're in the city of David. David, a man after God's own heart. What does David say? Peter points to him. For David says concerning him, Peter says, David says concerning Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. For you have made known to me the paths of life. You have, you will give me a full of gladness with your presence. So Peter does as he looks at David and looks at this prophecy that David proclaims and says he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about Jesus and he makes it plain and applies it for them in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. David died, and he's gone. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And Peter takes the truth of the Old Testament and points it to Jesus. And then he brings the crowd to a climax. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that all of you are witnesses. Now keep in mind, this is an actual statement. Peter's testifying that many of you saw him crucified. And if you didn't, you know somebody who did. And many of you saw him resurrected. And if you didn't, you know somebody who did. This is not a huge community. You are witnesses. So he makes it personal. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He was waiting for Jesus. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, and he challenges and confronts them with the truth that they crucified Jesus, that this was the definitive plan of God that you and I are responsible for, and it requires a response. And they knew it. For in verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, What should we do? I want you to see this. Because what Peter does is he stands up and with some boldness proclaims the gospel. Now the Holy Spirit gave him boldness, did he not? And I trust the Holy Spirit gave him words. For I had no clue how familiar with Joel Or David, Peter would have been, though the New Testament affirms, that Jesus sat them all down and walked through the whole Old Testament saying, this is me, this is me, this is me, this is me. They could have gotten it from the mouth of Jesus himself. But in this moment, it's not Peter that cuts to the heart of men. It's the Holy Spirit that does. It's not Peter that brings these guys to the point of saying, what do we do? It's the Holy Spirit that is at work. Friends, this is your job and mine. We preach the gospel. The results aren't ours. We're called to be faithful, not productive. We're called to be faithful, not successful. And I point that out to you because in like eight verses, we're going to get to thousands coming to know the Lord. And that's not God's will for your life, probably. Now it may be that there's one of you here that he's raising up and it's going to be awesome. But I suspect the vast majority of us are going to toil. And we're going to labor. And we're going to love. And God is going to call us to be faithful. And let the Spirit do His work. But in this case, A crowd of people says, what do we do? That's a great question. It's a great question because it leads into life, doesn't it? The number of times you sit and talk to somebody and they tell you about something that's going on with their children, they say, what do I do? Or the number of times you talk to somebody and they're telling you about what's going on in their life and they say, what do I do? Pretty leading question. And Peter answers it. Peter says to them, quite boldly, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter doesn't hold back. More importantly, Peter doesn't try to talk them into it. Peter just proclaims the truth. Repent repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Please underline that. This is not a club for the holy, for the righteous, for those who get it. For God has made Himself available to you and to your children and for those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received His Word were baptized And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Peter stands up. Not as an experienced guy. Not as a trained guy. We'll get to that later in the book of Acts. Where Peter people testify, it's obvious this guy wasn't educated. This is a guy full of the Holy Spirit. Standing up in boldness. Trusting. That God would work. This is a guy who stands up empowered and points to Jesus and points to salvation that is found in Christ alone and empowers you to point others to the same salvation. Friends, as we work through Acts over and over again, the Holy Spirit has two major works you're going to see over and over again and that we need to get. First, the Holy Spirit works to point you to Jesus. It's why he convicts you of your sin. That's the guilt you feel when you've done something wrong. That's the Holy Spirit going, brother, you need Jesus. Now sometimes that's in a saving way. Sometimes for us that's the Holy Spirit going, you can't handle this. This is more than you can handle. Your sin is not yours. This weight that you feel, it's not yours to take. This weight, give it to Jesus. He'll take it from you. I want to free you. And some of us, that's the Holy Spirit at work going, why are you still holding on to this? Why do you still practice this? Are you kidding me? Jesus wants to free you. He wants to give you a new life. Why are you choosing this when I could have that? God has so much more for us. Friends, and that's really the truth of sin. I'm off script, so if I blow it, here comes. That's the truth of the gospel. We choose bags of garbage when he has a feast for us. Sin is choosing junk. I think it was, well, I'm going to forget the guy's name, the guy, uh, Louis Pasteur, who said, sin is like licking the dirt. Like we stand outside of a five-star restaurant and we lick the earth, thinking it will satisfy us. When God says, welcome in, I have a beautiful buffet for you, I want to fill you in ways you can't even imagine. And we're outside licking the pavement going, mmm, I think I found some salt. I'll wander back in. The Holy Spirit works to point us to Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit works to call us to point others to Jesus. Because if He is the only hope we have, and He is, then He's the only hope of the world. And we'll step into that next week as we move into Acts 3. The Friends, the only thing you have worthy of offering anyone is, say it louder, say it with some passion, it's the only thing you have of any value, it's Jesus, it's what the world needs, is Jesus. Now I'll grant you, my neighbor last week needed a pair of scissors, but what she really needed was Jesus. It's always, 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 always true. And you know why? Because what I really need is Jesus. When I call you and ask you a question, please know that I may need something, but I need Jesus. Just like when you call me, you may ask me some questions, but I know you really need Jesus. Because, friends, that's why we're here. That's why God doesn't just save us and suck us up. Oh, good, I got you. Mindful. He saves us so that we can point others to Jesus, so we can be the big club. He goes, man, I can't figure it out either. Man, I'm struggling too, but Jesus. Man, I'm hurting and I'm broken too. Jesus. The only hope I've got, Jesus. The only hope you've got, Jesus. These are the two major works of the Holy Spirit. I badly need him, and you badly need him. So, the Holy Spirit works to point me to Jesus and then to use me, through me, to point you to Jesus. That's it. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And don't think that's a minor work. This is the third person in the Trinity. You think Jesus had an important job dying for you? This is no less of an important job. This time you're involved. God gives you the grace of being used to get a first-hand seat to watch God save people so that we would be reminded that we too are forgiven. That He forgives and is gracious and He makes Himself known. Friends, I believe this morning the Holy Spirit is at work in us. And that He's pointing us to Jesus. Jesus. And in the words of Peter, he's pointing some of us to salvation. And some of us were being called to repent and to be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Every one of you. So if I asked the question, which of us needs to repent and be baptized? Every one of you better raise your hand. Peter's making that clean and clear. Who needs to repent and be baptized? All of us. Which begs the question. Because this is where the gospel comes home. Some of us are called to repent. To turn away from our sin. To look to Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. And to accept a salvation that we may have flirted with, but never walked into. And some of us have been following Jesus for a while, but we've gotten lazy. We've gotten lackadaisical. We've gotten off focus. We've gotten off mission and we need to repent. Just so we're clear about that, I'm in that second category. So you don't think I'm in some third category of a guy who's nailing it and, and it sounds like I'm trying to make you feel guilty. I'm in that second category as I think most of us are. We need to repent. We need to look at Jesus and accept the grace that he has for us. And don't miss this. And be baptized. Friends, we're going to have to talk about baptism a lot as we work through this book of Acts. Because baptism is to the believer what a wedding is to a married couple. It's a public affirmation of your commitment. Now, does baptism save you? Please say no louder. Baptism is not remotely salvific. And at the same point, church, it's not optional either. It's not like, if I feel like it, if I want to... Peter says, by the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit, repent and be baptized. Those things go together in the Bible. And if baptism is something you've never walked into, we would love to help you fulfill that request, that command that God might be calling some of us to get baptized because we've believed in Him, because we've trusted in Him, and yet we've never made public our commitment to Him, please don't think that baptism is necessary for church membership and you don't really care about church membership, so you don't really need baptism. Know that you are actually avoiding a command of God. not Ben speaking. It's a scripture. And I tell it to you straightly and pointedly because we're going to hit it like 19 more times in the next several weeks. Because every time, repent is followed with and be baptized. Publicly proclaim Christ. And friends, all of us need to be challenged by the life of Peter who received a great boldness with the coming of the Holy Spirit. And here's the convicting part. And stopped being the guy who merely confessed Jesus privately and became the guy who boldly proclaimed him publicly that's the work of the holy spirit we see here he stopped being a man with a private right testimony of jesus and became the man who boldly proclaimed him publicly we'll lean into that more and more as we continue let me pray for us father thank you for your word that in it You give us truth. Truth to encourage us. Truth to build us up. Truth to challenge us. Truth to point out our errors. And truth to tell us that Your grace is sufficient for all of our needs. Father, let there not be one here who is so deep in sin that they think You can't forgive them. Father, for the cross testifies that You defeated death. You're bigger than all of those things. And here in a moment as we step towards communion, may we all know and understand that the participation of communion by believers is our testimony, our affirmation that Your death was sufficient and that Your blood has forgiven us. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, would You be at work in us always pointing us to Jesus and making us more aware of Your work to use us to point others to Your Son. It's in the great name of Jesus we pray. Amen.